as you find your seats again, I ask you can open up your Bibles, your devices, or read along with us as we um, listen to hear what God has to say through Ruth. Um, I'm in John chapter 10, and we're starting on verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before, came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to only steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Thank you. Good morning, flock of God. That was not the version I um, am preaching from because I am preaching, I am the gate. So FYI, it's, it's sometimes uh, translated in those two different ways. I'm Pastor Ruth, and we are in the midst of this series about Jesus being enough for us, the seven statements from John of I am, where he claims that he's God and he claims he's enough. I am the bread. I'm enough for your hunger. I am the vine. I'm the connection point for you to God, and I am the light. I'm the one who brings hope and um, guidance for your life. And I love this series because it's reminding us of God's adequacy through Jesus for us. He's sufficient to our needs. He's adequate for our inadequacies. He's up for the challenges that I have every week and that I know you have every week. Last week in my life, I was up in Canada celebrating my mom's 90th birthday with my siblings, and we had an awesome time, and I said, while I'm in Calgary, Mom, what would you like to do? And she said, you know, I don't get out to shop a lot. I love to go shopping, which is a really optimistic thing from my perspective, <laughs> to need new clothes at 90. So she takes her walker and the three sisters, and we go shopping at one of the big malls, Market Mall in Calgary. And this is how the Let's Girls shop. You go into Talbot's, you go to the back of the store, you go to the clearance racks, you completely shop those looking for what you're looking for, and you leave the store. And then you go into Clio's, and you go to the back of the store, and you go to the clearance racks, and you shop those racks, and then you leave the store. And you go to Laura's, you go to the back of the store, you shop the clearance racks, and you leave the store. You go to the Hudson Bay, you go to her department in the Hudson Bay, and you go to the back of the store where the clearance racks are, and you shop those racks. Now, if I want a pair of shoes, and the right pair of shoes are right there in front at, at a price I can afford, I cannot buy those shoes. I have to wait until they're on sale, because I have been shaped by going in and out, in and out of stores with my mom my whole life, that you cannot buy things at the front of the store. I, didn't, I had a friend who said, why can't you buy this raincoat that you need? And it's like, because it's at the front of the store. So <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't actually know you could buy those till I was an adult. I'm a sh and and, if, and if, if my mom had known about thrift stores, we would have been in thrift stores. So now I also shop thrift stores. But I've thought about that shaping of that in and out. I am a shaped shopper. <laughs> and I thought about the way God wants to shape us. He wants to shape us like his son. As he, as he says, Paul said, writes in Romans 8, 29, he says, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. 
he decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he is restoring. We see the original and intended shape of our lives in him. God is shaping us, and it is through this repetitive in and out. And for me, this week, that, is, that image of the gate and Jesus saying that we're going to go in and out and in and out and that he is the gate. This is the place that we are shaped. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your words. We're grateful for the way that you meet us in our everyday lives. We thank you that you have purpose and intention for us in relationship with you to be changed to the shape that you created us for. We pray that this morning our, our, our eyes would be open to your presence, that our ears would be open to your voice, and that we would respond and be shaped by you and bring glory to you in Christ's name. Amen. So if you look at your outline, it's pretty simple. There's going in and there's going out. <laughs> and both of those are places where we are shaped. The big idea is that God shapes us through this daily walk with him as we connect with his life and allow him to renovate every part of our heart so that we can live that abundant, eternal kind of life that God made us for. And to get some of the context of our passage, we have to remember we're not sheep people, but Israel was. They were all about sheep. How many of you have actually seen a flock of sheep? You see, oh, quite a few of you have at least seen one. Good. That means you've at least gotten out of the city now and then. But Israel, this was the metaphor that God used from the very beginning. In Ezekiel, he says, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture... You are people and I am your God, declares the Lord God. And one of the tenderest pictures of God as our shepherd comes from Isaiah 40 where he says, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Now I know Scott's getting a little nervous because next week he's preaching, I am the shepherd. So I have to, you know, we're, we're sort of overlapping a little bit here because that metaphor is important for the gate as well. But as, as Jesus is speaking to his audience about sheep, they would have been super familiar with the picture that he's painting. There were flocks of sheep all over the place, and I did a little deep biblical research and found out that sheep eat about 100 square feet of grass a day. So that means if you have any size of flock, you've got to be moving them all the time. And as you move them at night, you have to find shelter for them. Sheep are not very good at protecting themselves from wolves and lions. And so at night, they would find a shelter, something really simple, like one of the pictures has just kind of a stick enclosure. Um, other places would have a, a sheepfold that was a little more substantial, maybe made of stone. And the shepherd would actually sleep across the opening of that fold so that nothing could get in, no predators could get in and prey on the sheep, and also no sheep could wander out and get lost. They would have to go over the body of the shepherd. I thought about my dad when we went camping. He would sleep at the door of the tent, right? No kids in, no, no, no bears in, no kids out. The shepherd 
was literally the gate. He was the door. He was the threshold in and out for the flock. There's a lot of questions today when, this, when these statements of Jesus, I am, come up about the exclusivity of Jesus as the way to God. This very popular and difficult question to answer today of what about other ways? What about coming to God in other ways? And we're going to really hit that topic when we get to the statements, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But I want to point out that each of these statements, Jesus is claiming a legitimacy and an exclusivity that we can't just pass over. In fact, his audience at the end of chapter 10 decide that he is either insane or demon-possessed. That's the audaciousness of this claim of his that I am the gate. He's saying he is the only legitimate entrance point to God's flock. It's clearly his intent to claim that when he says, I am claiming the name that God had given himself and then saying that he is the gate. Well, I'm assuming this is a family meeting for me. This is the, the family of God. And so I'm assuming that many, if not most of you, have at some point gone through the gate, have put your trust in Jesus, and that you were part of the flock of God. And primarily today, it's to you I'm speaking, whether it's here at North or online later. Uh, the first part of the verse was, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. But Jesus goes on to say, they will come in and go out and find pasture. So it's true, we wake up spiritually when we first trust Christ. We are adopted into his family. It's a done deal. We are saved. We are safe. We are part of God's family, and that cannot be undone. And it's also true in the Bible that there's a lot of passages that talk about being saved, being in the process of being saved. As Philippians 2, Paul says, we are each to work out our salvation. That is, we are supposed to pursue and participate in Christ's life, becoming connected with our life, with our everyday life. He wants it to, to affect who we are and how we are in the world. And so first on our outline, we're going to look at the ways that as we go in to intimacy with God and intimacy with his community, how we are shaped by that. And uh, we're going to look at three, three ways. First, when we go in to God, we belong. Ephesians 2.19 says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. A couple of years ago, my daughter made t-shirts for the Seidel family at Christmas, and they had Seidel rules, and we have rules like, don't win, dominate. That's one of our rules. <laughs> and she's pretty accurate on the, on, the, on the rules. Anyway, another family member was there when we got these t-shirts, and she said to me, you're not a real Seidel. She said, your kids are real Seidels. They were born Seidels, but you married into the family. You're not really a Seidel. And let's just say, I was deeply offended. In fact, I'm telling all of you, so apparently I'm still deeply offended. Uh, I have been a Seidel for 40 years. I was only a Let's for 20 years. I've been a Seidel. I've been investing in that family. I've been caring about 
uh, out them, identifying with them for 40 years. And what I heard her say is, you don't belong yet. I don't, I don't think that's really what she meant, but that was what I heard. Jesus said about his family, his family came to visit him in ministry, his, his mother and his brothers, and he's, he said to the crowd, who do you think my mother and brothers are? He stretched out his hand and he pointed to his disciples and he said, these are my mother and brothers. Obedience is thicker than blood. The person who obeys my heavenly father's will is family. Jesus calls us family. The day we arrive and go in the gate and trust Christ, we are family. We don't have to wait 40 years. We don't have to wait to grow up and be mature. Like a newborn babe, we are part of the family and we belong. There's a level ground for all of us as we come to the family of God. We all came through the same gate. I love how we do communion here at Bethany North because we use one loaf and one cup. And that's the symbols that Jesus gave us to remind us that these are the same elements, his blood and his body, that, that through which all of us come to God. Ephesians 4 says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were all called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So that beginning day, we are part of the family, but like all blended families, and the family of God is a blended family, there's problems. In fact, most of the New Testament was written in response to family problems. That's what those letters are about. And Paul began that passage that I just read from Ephesians 4. He begins that passage by saying this, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you've been called. That is, he says, your family has a reputation and how you act is going to reflect on Christ's name, the family name. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. He's describing there, these are the family norms. This is how we're supposed to treat one another. And then he says, being diligent, to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that's the family commitment. The, the commitment we make to one another is that we are going to preserve unity. When we have an issue, we're going to, come to, we're going to go to each other personally and talk about it. We're not going to hide things and bury things. We are going to work things out in the family of God. We're not going to leave. We are going to work it out. So when you walk in that gate, you walk in a gate to the fold, there are no individual stalls. There are no single rooms. Sheep are a family and we belong. The second thing that shapes us as we go in and out the gate of Jesus is that we experience deliverance. It was in that first section where he said, we come in through him and are saved. And saved is like a really churchy word, probably not something you have emblazoned anywhere on a t-shirt. Um, and so sometimes we kind of can't connect with the word. And, and so I want to talk about what it means to be saved. Because it is about being delivered, it's about being restored to health, and it's about being preserved or protected. Delivered from danger, rescued. This is one of the primary identities that the people of God had. In fact, when God gave the Ten Commandments 
to the Jews in Exodus 20, he began before he gave, just before he gave them the commandments, kind of saying, who are the people in this covenant? He says, I am God, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a land of slavery. That's our starting point, is that our, denti- our identity is that we have been rescued from something. We've been delivered from danger, especially the danger of being outside of the family of God and subject to judgment with evil. We've also been restored to health. And in Matthew, when when Jesus heals a woman, several translations like door and gate, um, the word saved is also translated made well. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. And then in 2 Timothy 4.18, it talks about our, our, our salvation being our protection, our ongoing protection from, and, and preservation from evil. So I don't think we connect a lot with that. I don't, I don't hear, outside of, honestly, 12-step programs, where I think people with a, who are freed of addictions really get what it means to be delivered, to be rescued for something. So I'm going to turn this classroom into a lab for a minute, and I want you to Give me some ideas of what are some of the things that you would say we have been freed of. What have we been freed from? Death. Death. Guilt. That's a good one. Fear. Condemnation. Anxiety. Awesome. Loneliness. Thank you. Anything else you can think of? I'm sorry. I can't. Overwhelmed. Okay. So uh, that's, that's a great list. We have been freed of guilt, of shame. One that I think of a lot is bondage to self. Our culture is in bondage to self. God in our world is self, right? The, the highest good, the highest uh, value that most of our world in America thinks is me. I'm the highest thing. I'm God. What I, you know, do what you want to do. Make sure you take care of yourself. All of, all of that stuff is about bondage to self, and it is, it is everywhere. Some of us are addicted to things. And some of us are in bondage to our kids, quite frankly. And maybe this is like a 60-year-old person having, having a perspective now that my kids are gone. Like, that's a season of life. And I just encourage you not to be in bondage to your kids. Free of resentment, free of discontent, free to serve. We have been set free. So we've all come through Jesus, the gate. And as we go in, Daily, going in, going in, going in. We discover our belonging. We discover we are rescued. And we discover that there is care and healing for us. You know who doesn't get free? People in isolation. One of the things that really caught my attention, we did a church survey last fall, and one of the things that really caught my attention was the question, what is the biggest barrier to your spiritual growth? What do you think the highest percentage, what the number one answer? Isolation. Isolation. Other ideas? Time. Time. It was time. 
the number one barrier to spiritual growth, time. What was the number one barrier to you being involved in the lives of other people in a smaller community? Time. Yes, that was the number one answer for both of those. People who are in smaller groups where Sunday is not their only connection with the community at North feel connected. People who are not in smaller groups and Sunday is their only experience don't feel connected. And what's the barrier to that happening? Time. James 5 tells us that it's in the community where confession and prayer lead to healing. Often when I talk to people and they say they don't hear from God, I say, or, he, or they say God isn't showing up in my life, it's the first question I'll ask, who are you connected with? Who's your intimate circle of fellow believers who's encouraging you and um, delivering you and rescuing you and caring for you? Because if you, if, if you are thinking that uh, God will show up in another form, you are missing it. God shows up most often. Most of the guidance in my life, most of the care in my life, most of the shepherding in my life has not been from a voice somewhere. It has been an, another human being. I have a group of women I meet with every two weeks and we've been doing it for years, and they are the group who deliver me. They are the group who rescue me, who help me to find rest, who help me to find health and wholeness in my walk with Christ. We, we confess to God our sins, certainly. There is great power in confessing to another human being. And I think it's something evangelicals haven't practiced much, and quite frankly, I think it's killing us. Because for many of us, the only time we confessed was that first time we came to Christ. And we have not continued the practice of day in and day out confession. Confession of our brokenness. Confession of where we fall short. Confession of our need, not just to God, but to another human being. In the book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23... One of the pictures he gives as the sheep come back into the fold at night is that he would put the rod across the doorway so the sheep could only come in one at a time. And that's so the shepherd can inspect the sheep. So he's looking as they come in. Is, is one of them limping? Is one of them looking ill? Does one of them have something caught in their fur or are in some other way uh, hurt? Each one is seen as they come in and each one is cared for. And I thought that's such a beautiful picture uh, of returning in the evening. And I thought perhaps it's something we could adopt, whether we literally leave home to work or not. What if we took a few minutes each evening to connect with the shepherd as we go through the gate? What if we took a few minutes to look through his eyes at how we are doing? He's been out there with us all day, right? He knows. He knows about the places where I felt really connected and energized and where I was honoring life, where I was being of service, uh, where I felt connected to myself and authentic. And he also knows about the places that were completely life-draining. He knows about the conversations that went sideways. He knows about the painful moments in the day. But what a gift it would be in the evening to just take a moment as we enter back in to recognize the shepherd. 
and perhaps to share that with each other. I know families who practice this, uh, a time ar around the table perhaps of sharing not just what was the high point, but where did you really mess up? Where did you make a mistake? Because that's part of our life with the shepherd as well. What if we could acknowledge that with one another and then leave it in the hands of the shepherd as we sleep? You know, science tells us that our brains are really busy while we sleep, and I think it's part of the care of the shepherd that as we sleep, our memories are being consolidated and our toxins are being uh, cleaned out of our brain and there's, we're, that we're processing information. And I think it's one of the ways that he cares for us. The one who said in Matthew 11, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I love that. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. We follow this shepherd, and we are shaped as we enter in and go out and enter in in that daily pattern with him. There's an author and speaker named Ann Weems. Uh, she was well-known in Presbyterian circles, and she died last year. She lived through probably the most horrible thing a parent can imagine, and that was that her son was murdered. Uh, on his 21st birthday, he was beaten to death. And she was a friend and colleague of Walter Brueggemann. And one time in conversation, he asked, he, he asked her permission to ask her a question about her experience. This is years later. And he said to her, I want to ask you a question from the Bible. And the question was from the Psalms. Will Rachel finally be comforted? And Anne thought about it for a while. And then she said, no. She won't be comforted. Not until God wipes away every tear from her eyes. And I wanted to read this poem from her book, part of which was written in response to her experience with her son. Her book is called Psalms of Lament. Open the door, O God. Burst in and seize me from the hell of remembering. O God, I will continue to ask, to seek. To knock for you are the door of hope, and the door will be open to me, and I will live in your blessing. I can only believe that Anne was shaped by years and decades of going in and out, of coming to the door that is Jesus, expecting hope and comfort and healing. And she declared at the end of her life that she left the earth in alleluia's. Jesus describes this great freedom we have, this forming of his flock, that we come in and go out and find pasture. And you and I are shaped by our awareness of that on a daily basis. We are shaped as we go in, and we are also shaped as we go out. In Luke 10, Jesus sent 70 of his followers out in pairs, and he, he, he was, they were sort of a for the team going ahead to prep the territory where he was coming. And he said, there's a great harvest coming. I want you to travel light. You're going to be lambs among wolves. Um, accept hospitality when people are welcoming to you and don't waste a lot of time with those who don't want you. And then in verse 17 of Luke 10, it says, the 70 returned with joy 
talking about the awesome things they'd seen God do. I, I was remembering like a first mission trip, like the first time you go somewhere and actually do something where you're relying on God, and maybe you've had a more recent mission trip. But there is nothing like that joy, is there? That joy of seeing God actually make a, making a difference through you in the lives of other people. We were made for that, right? But what about when you come back from Ethiopia <laughs> and you come back from Rwanda or Honduras? What about Mondays? What about Wednesdays? What about laundry? What about traffic? Where's the joy? I want to suggest this morning that the joy comes when we recognize that Jesus is the gate we go out to our everyday life. Jesus is the gate out to our everyday life if we will be aware of that. Romans 12.1 says, here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embrace what God has done for you. That's the best thing you can do for him. Your everyday life is your calling. What if you purposely crossed a threshold every day and recognized that you are on mission to God? whether you're headed to the children's bedroom or to the boardroom. Maybe for you that threshold is truly a baby gate that you have to step over to get, to get into your calling. <laughs> or maybe it's um, as a student that you cross the threshold to the lab or the library. Or maybe it's your commute. Your commute could literally be the threshold in which you acknowledge your call from God and where you accept your call to your cubicle. What would that be like to recognize it as God's call on your life, your everyday life? In my office, I have a plaque from my friend Julie Anderton with the words, bidden or unbidden, God is present. God's already there wherever you are going. And God's going with you and is in you. When we go out aware and awake that Jesus is the gate leading us into our lives, our sleeping, eating, walking around everyday lives, and when we place it before him as an offering, we can find joy. I keep returning to laundry. I must have a problem with laundry, but I do remember, especially, you know, the piles of laundry with, with young kids, and I remember having a change of attitude, and I don't know if I heard it for, from someone, I probably did, where someone suggested consecrating that to God, to see that, to see the folding of all those little tiny pieces of clothing that accumulates so fast, um, to see that as an act of worship to God. The joy comes as we accept our, our circumstances, our current circumstances, where we are right now in the light of God's presence. The 70 returned with joy over what had been accomplished. And Jesus says to them, the great triumph is not your authority over evil, not what you've done, but in God's authority over you and presence with you. Not what you do for God, but what God does for you. That's the agenda for rejoicing. We're not the center. Even when we have powerful experiences or amazing uh, accomplishments for God, 
we are not the center. He is the center. The center is what God is doing. And we are shaped if we can go in and go out daily recognizing that wherever we are headed, Jesus is the gate we go through. Sheep have to get out of the pen if they're going to grow, if they're going to mature. And we are told over and over in the New Testament, Paul sometimes sounds a little frustrated even saying, grow up. God wants us not to remain infants, Ephesians 4 says. He doesn't want us to be easily blown off course when things happen in our life. He doesn't want us to be blown up by the latest Christian fad. He wants us to be mature. Verse 13 in chapter 4, he says, God wants us to grow up fully mature adults, fully developed within and without, fully alive like Christ. So what are some signs of maturity? I'm going to ask a few from you first. What do you think are signs of Christian maturity? Patience. Patience. Love. Love. Self-control. Hearing a theme here of fruit of the spirit, absolutely. Forgiveness. Grace. Yeah, those are great signs. The life of Christ being reproduced in us. And one I wanted to mention was that we get to know the voice of the shepherd. My husband has this whistle he does with his teeth. And our kids are trained in it, and I think now my son is training his son with it too. So literally, like at a soccer field with hundreds of people or, you know, in a school gymnasium or whatever, he would do this whistle with his teeth, and my kids would turn and look wherever they are. They, they knew his voice, right? And we need to become familiar with the voice of God. It's done with practice, I think it's in Hebrews. Hebrews 5.14, it says, the mature, the mature who have, because of practice, had their senses trained to discern good and evil. So we become mature as we practice discernment. And discernment is listening for the voice of the shepherd. Which, what is good and what is evil? What is better and what is best? How do we hear God? People ask me that, and unfortunately, I'm going to give you like three quick answers, all of which can be, have pitfalls to them. So the first is obviously the word of God. We have to be familiar with what God has said, and there's all kinds of pitfalls to, to simply opening the Bible and trying to get your direction like that. But the second one is the community, that we need to have people who speak into our lives. Most often, my call has come through a person right? So people, my friends, help the, that group of women, they help me discern my call here. I have people who pray for me and who listen and who, who suggest questions and suggest things I might not have thought of. And thirdly is just the sense of personal prayer and conviction that God gives us in our hearts. Um, there's a great book, by, by the way, on this by J.I. Packer called Guard Us, Guide Us. And I, as I was thinking about books, I realized I moved into the north offices and I have books that are made out of paper. <clears throat> they didn't really have bookcases. <laughs> this, this is, you know, they're all 20 years or more younger than me. So I have books that are made out of paper and I brought boxes and boxes of those books to north and they were gracious enough to get three bookcases for me. And so I just want you to know there's a bunch of books there. 
and I'm happy to loan them. In fact, my husband said, I think we need to assure that Bethany North, wherever they go, will have a library because those books are never coming home. <laughs> so please come and use them. If you, if, I mean, there's lots of stuff there. I'd love to have those books used. But, um, so, so we, we are guided. We're guided to know this, the, the voice of the shepherd by his word, by other people, and then listening in our heart to him. Philippians 3 says that the mature are the ones who imitate Christ's humility, who don't grumble, who pay attention not to their credentials, but to God's plans and purposes. And one of those plans and purposes is that ma mature sheep beget sheep. Mature sheep beget sheep. And they care for sheep, the little sheep, the little lambs. They, they, they are caring for those who are less mature. Mature, one sign of maturity is that we are reproducing the life of Christ in others, that we are invested in the life of those behind us. In Al-Anon, we tell people, if you've been here six weeks, you have something to give back. So I'd like to challenge you with that. If you've been here six weeks, if you've been in the family of God for six weeks, you have something to give back. There's someone who needs what you have already learned in your walk with Christ. You can be of help to someone. And it's one of the ways that we mature. So we head out into life and we serve. In, in serving, we find joy. We learn to listen to the voice of God. And finally, we also go out through the gate of Jesus to pasture, or as verse 10 calls it, abundant life, abounding life, full life. Jesus is leading us to a life better than we could create for ourselves. And that's sometimes, that's one of those like really bedrock questions you need to get answered in your life. Is what God plans for me good? I mean, I knew as a little girl in church, growing up in church, I, what's funny is now everybody wants to go to Africa. I never wanted to go to Africa. You know, now the kids would be like, yes, we get to go to Africa. I was always like, please don't call me to Africa. I hate bugs. I hate heat. <laughs> please don't call me to Africa. And it's one of those foundational things we have to decide. Is God's plan for me good or is it bad? And if, if, I, if I don't understand that his plan for me is good, I will have a hard time following. I have a, I have a friend who's a principal of an elementary school. And one year, uh, the kids were getting off the bus. It was the first day of school. And there were some parents there, and he, he got to meet them and found out that they were parents of a brand-new kindergartner who was first day of school, but they had put her on the bus because they wanted to make sure she could navigate the bus. And then they, then they drove to school, and were going to meet her at school, make sure everything turned out all right. So they wait, the buses unload, and this little girl doesn't appear. And the parents are getting, understandably, anxious and upset, and finally, Dave goes back in the office and calls around and finds out that she had gone to the wrong school. She was on the wrong bus. She went to the wrong school. The bus driver was bringing her over to her school. And he says, by this time, the mother is hysterical. He goes, I don't want her meeting this child at the bus. So I said, wait in my office. I'm going to meet this little girl uh, at the bus. So he goes out to the bus, and the door is open. A little five-year-old girl with, like, cowboy boots up to her knees <laughs> standing there. And not, she's not worried in the least. He goes, who are you? And she tells him her name. And then she hops down on the bus, and he says, where have you been? She says, I've been on an adventure. 
<laughs> she wasn't worried in the least. And I thought, that is such a great picture of our life of abundance with God. Even if we're on the wrong bus, even if we end up at the wrong school, we're on an adventure with God. There's no mistakes. There's not a written itinerary where you can get off and you're, 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 you've missed the whole trip. You're with a shepherd who cares for you. You're with a shepherd who's watching out for you. You're with a shepherd who will lead you. And today, I'm really hoping that some of us will come to a commitment to some kind of daily practice, a daily practice that acknowledges our coming and our going through the gate of Christ. For years, Jewish people had one prayer, the Shema prayer from Deuteronomy 6, that they prayed every day. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I com I'm commanding you today shall be written on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk, to, talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk in the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You should write them on the doorposts and on the gates of your house. And from this, you, you probably have seen Jewish houses that have a mezuzah. It's like a little box with some scripture in it that's literally on the doorpost or on the gate of the house. So that every time they walk through that threshold, they are reminded as they go out to pray and as they go in to pray. So what is your threshold moment? How can you bring awareness of Jesus as the gate who both brings you in for care and for deliverance, and who takes you out for, for, the, for pasture, for maturity. He, he, he wants you to have joy with him. Everything that is inside you, everything that is outside you, can all be used in this shaping process. He wants to shape you more and more to bear the family likeness, the shape of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your generous, loving, kind hand in our lives as your people. And we are aware of being unaware. We're aware of being not awake to you in our everyday life, not awake to you uh, and to, to coming to you with our, with our needs. We're aware that we, we sometimes just wander off. Father, would you remind us this week, would you bring a threshold to mind for each of us, a door, a gate, where we can be intentional about inviting you to shape us as we go out and shape us as we come in. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. The prayer team will be up here. If you would like prayer for something, please, please join them.